Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. I know that pause made you want to say good morning back to me and I cut you off. And, uh, sorry about that. We are in the book of Acts this morning. The message is entitled, Christianity's Close Call. We'll take verses 1 through 7 in the book of Acts, chapter 6. Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. If you would stand for the reading of God's word, please, we will begin. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to these Greek names down here. Now, in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word, and the saying pleased the multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmias, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were also obedient to the faith. Please be seated. In this chapter, as in the preceding, Satan's two master methods are deployed Again, endeavoring to upset the progress of God's work. There is the outward persecution and the inward dissension. That's what we have here. Problems from within. How many of you and how many Christians are aware of how close the Bible came to becoming a secondary thing in the early church? What would have happened? been the outcome if when the apostles were faced with serving the body meals, what would have happened if they said, okay, whatever you need, prayers and time in the scriptures, that can wait. What would have happened to Christianity? It would have been scriptural to make scripture secondary. Could you imagine that? It would have been put into our doctrine. Who realizes this? How many Christians are ever mindful? How many people do you know know this? I'm not saying that to say, oh, you didn't know. But I am, at the same time, trying to stress this point. Christianity, as we know it from the Scripture, almost wiped out what the Old Testament teaches about God's Word and almost left us with a secondary Bible, works being more important than words of God. This is a big deal. Christianity faced three death threats in the days of the apostles, three outstanding death threats to our faith. This being the first one. Later, at Antioch, Judaism 
almost snatched Christianity into it and would have reduced it to being a sect of Judaism had Paul not stood up to Peter and Barnabas and said, not so. That would have been a death blow to our faith. The Judaizers, who we may come across again before this session is over at the end of the session, the other death threat to our faith came by way of the Gnostics. But the apostles were there to deal with it, and we have it in their writings. It's one of the reasons why John's first letter is so difficult to follow, because John's audience knew he was addressing Gnosticism. He did not have to give them a class on Gnosticism. Today, we look back 2,000 years, and we have to put the puzzle together. When we realize that, okay, this is what John is dealing with, the letter makes a lot of sense. This, of course, the first of the three. Here, calling the pastors away from the essentials. That's what was happening in this section. The apostles saw it. The people did not see it. If the apostles had waited for the people to see it, then Christianity would have suffered and would never have recovered. All three near-death blows were halted by the apostles of Jesus Christ, and for a reason. Well, the the reasons are obvious. I I think once we, we get them out in front... But where did this come from? How did these men get this? Where did they learn that their role was not to be overruled by social programs? Where did they learn this? Did they just make it up? Did they just perceive it? Well, they got it from our Lord. One of the first episodes of someone trying to reduce the word of God, and this was involuntary. This, this was by people who loved Jesus. People who loved Jesus were trying to reduce the word of God, and they didn't even know it. And one of the first ones was Martha. That story is in Luke chapter 10. I wish we had the time to dig into it a little bit more. I'll just take excerpts from it. The Bible says Martha was distracted. These apostles were almost distracted. And, of course, she protested to the Lord. She confronted him. My sister Mary is there enjoying a Bible study, and I'm making all these meals by myself. You could hear the pots flamming and the doors, the cabinet doors. She wasn't happy. But she brought that on herself. No one, no one said, hey, it'd be nice to have some food, Martha. Why don't you run in the kitchen real quick and cook something up? What was Jesus' response to Martha's complaint that the word was primary to, Ma- to Mary and Martha wanted that to stop? Jesus said this to her, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Now, this does not give license to the abuse of Bible teaching, where good works mean nothing, we just teach the word. That would be be silly. But this is an echo of Job's passion. Job, in the midst of all of his pain and suffering. I mean, as a man that just had come to hate life, was so confused about what God was doing. God was not confused. Job said, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That's a pretty heavy statement. I need God's word in my life more than I need food. I'd rather die than not have God's word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And yet this is not practice. It's widespread. The, the, 
disregard for these truths are widespread in Christianity. They take fragments of the scripture that they like, I guess, and just, just do away with the rest. This teaching about the importance of God's word is crystal clear. It is as clear as the Ten Commandments. There's nothing about the Ten Commandments that make you scratch your head and say, I wonder what that means. Thou shalt not kill. <laughs> Thou shalt not steal. Hmm. I'm not supposed to have any other gods. What does that mean? They're all very clear. And yet this is routinely bypassed. Ever see a church where the pastor does everything but invest himself in the scripture? Have you ever attended a church like that, especially long term? Satan knows this, but many Christians miss it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be prevalent. It wouldn't be all over the place. There are many churches in session right now, and they're not preaching from the word of God. Thank God there are others that are preaching. Compassion is still expected from us as disciples of Christ. But when the church gets too involved in human needs, failure is certain. It is certain to gobble that church up and make it into something Christ never wanted it to be. The tale right here in this section of Scripture, is ready to wag the dog. But they're not going to have it. Far less important would have become dominant, dictating behaviors and reversing the roles that were God-given. You younger Christians, are you understanding that I'm giving you bullets? I'm giving you bullets for your weapons for Christ. Learn these things at an early age and develop them for the rest of your life. Don't miss out on it. Don't be preoccupied with when is the service going to end. Occupy yourself with what is this man saying to me. Because if it is coming from the scriptures, it is for me. God singling you out at your age. Saying to you by name, this is for you. This is scriptural. The apostles unconfused the church about her assignment. Because the people were now, you know, hey, we, we'll get to why these people were coming into the church, why this situation was created. We got to it back in chapter 4. We'll cover it again. God will use this attack, and this is an attack, through, through otherwise good people. Satan in subtle ways. He uses this attack, God does, to raise up gallant servants, Stephen and Philip, of course, being the two most prominent. These, this service that God brings out of this continues to this day. Now we look at verse 1. With all of that hopefully in mind, we're not hopefully going to lose sight of any of that because it is critical. Christianity had a close call. It dodged a bullet on this day. Now in those days, verse 1, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now as typical in the Bible, the writers alternate between events and stories, not being too mindful always of, of the timeline. This is still in the very early, probably the first year of Christianity. He goes back now after the whole thing with... Uh, the 
the apostles uh, healing people and being put in jail and then getting out of jail and taking a beating for standing up to the authorities. This was an exciting and dangerous time to be a Christian in Jerusalem. It was exciting physically. It was exciting spiritually. It was dangerous physically. It was dangerous spiritually. Not much different than now. Here, the prayers, the scripture, the accord of the believers, the growth of the church, the conflict, the persecution, the prisons, the signs and the wonders. Prayer. Prayer is interdependence. If you think prayer makes you dependent, then you're missing it. I believe very strongly in this because I can pray, but if there's no action on my part, then God says, well, what, what can I, how can I get this done now? I am supposed to use your hands. I am supposed to use your mouth. But if it's just all on me, God, then there's a breakdown. Prayer is interdependence. Truth. Truth is preaching God's word, God's will. The facts from him to us. The accord, that's the unity. The growth, these things were happening. That was the fruit. And then the conflict, that was the confirmation that they were doing the right thing, that Satan was not going to take this lying down. This is what was happening in Jerusalem at this time. And in the midst of all of that, Satan says, I got a great idea. Let's get the leaders to not value what God says so much. Let's just reduce it. Let's shrink it down. Let's get them to stop praying before they start studying. When the number of the disciples was multiplying, it says here in verse 1, no less than nine times in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts does Luke draw our attention to the Christian's growth, to the growth of the church. That the Holy Spirit was moving in the lives of the people. And if that was happening in your community, you would draw attention to it also. A lot of folks are excited about a church that's growing. Yes, but what is the quality? It is always going to be Hopefully, quality over quantity. You can grow a crowd a lot easier than you can grow a church that bears the qualities of Scripture. Luke mentions great growth twice in this chapter alone. Sheep, healthy sheep, begetting sheep. That's discipleship. That's Christianity in action. Who doesn't want this? What Christian doesn't want to see this happen? What Christian does not want to be a part of another person's Life in Christ, coming to Christ. The minute you step into the church, you're on, you, you are a part of God's process. It is a big deal. Otherwise, Satan and the world would not invest so much in trying to keep you out of a church. Of course, this presupposing it's a church that is pursuing the things that have been given to us in the Scripture. But it is unrealistic to expect that the one accord that the apostles enjoyed in the early days would go uncontested. It would be unrealistic. Same with you. You're doing great in Christianity. It would be unrealistic to suppose that you're not going to have some kind of attack come against you. It could be internal. You could just get bored with Scripture. That's a big attack. It doesn't feel like it when it's happening. But you notice it. If you are perceptive enough, you know it's a big attack. It says here, there arose a complaint, the Greek word, a grumbling. Faith fertilizes, criticism sterilizes. The wilderness Jews, 
You know, the ones that came out of Egypt didn't want to go into the promised land because they didn't believe God's word. They were sentenced to 40 years of wandering. Those Jews complained regularly. And what happened to them? They became expert grave diggers in the desert. That is what happened to them. What a lesson is in that. Paul didn't want the Corinthians going that route. So he, t- he said to the Corinthians in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he's, he says, nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. He parks it here for a minute because this is a big point. He's moving around making his points and he stops here. And then he says, making this pertinent to us as long as we're in this world, now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These things are preserved, Paul said, for we, the church, in the last days, which began with the Christ. And now we are in the last of the last days, as signaled by all of the technology and world events. Abraham. Abraham left in Canaan. Altars everywhere. If you wanted to find Abraham, you just follow the altars and it leads you right to him. But his offspring in the wilderness, all they left were forgotten graves. You can't find one to this day because they had become good at complaining. Now, that's not entirely what's happening here with these folks. These folks have a valid complaint, but it is an opportunity for us to address something that pops up in all of us, the ease to criticize. It's so easy. And Elijah, we, we're talking about Elijah. He just that came very easy to Elijah, just criticizing everybody. I am the only one, and that's that. Anyway, back to what is happening here. Often, the first evidence that Satan is about to strike is through a complaint, especially a petty one. There's no mention that these people were rebuked for their complaining about what was happening. Because, again, there was an injustice taking place. It was valid. And Luke leaves out any details that he filters out. You know, they don't need to hear. They need to just understand there was a problem in the early church, and the apostles sprung into action, and the people went with them. And they got it done. That's what Luke is telling us. Problem came up, and everybody in one accord resolved it. It says against the Hellenists by uh, against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. I'm still in verse one. Well, who got the extra scoop of ice cream? Well, the the Jerusalem Jews, the Jews from Judea, those native to Jerusalem and Judea, those that uh, were really keeping as much distance as possible from the Roman Greco culture that was surrounding them, and they looked at other Jews who did not live in Jerusalem or Judea, came from around the world or even up in Galilee, they looked with them with suspicion, saying to themselves, they're not Jewish enough. They're compromised. They're compromising our heritage. They don't even speak the Hebrew. They're clumsy with the Aramaic. They speak fine Greek, though. That's how they criticize them. This happens today. There's, you know, there's some, some of the Jews for Jesus are a little like this, right? You know, you're not a Jewish Christian? okay, you go sit over there. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's fallen nature, and we all have to watch it. I mean, my, I judge people a little bit. I say, oh, you're not bald like me? 
I don't do that. Nor, nor do I rejoice when I see someone balder than me. The Hellenist Jews. These were ethnic Jews who practiced Judaism. They were just as devout in their love for Yahweh as the other ones. But they had adopted much of the habits from the Grecian culture. Uh, Aristotle was one of the teachers of Alexander the Great. And when Alexander went around conquering places, Aristotle said, hey, assimilate the people to the Grecian culture. Make the whole world Greek. And he did, by doing this, he gave us a common language to spread the gospel. The world didn't even know God was using them. The Romans were laying down roads everywhere so Paul could come along and preach the gospel and build churches using the Grecian language and the Jewish faith as his foundation. God always knows what he is doing. Well, these Hellenistic Jews, they, most of them spent much of their lives outside of Jerusalem and Judea, and it showed. And this is the problem. And so here at Pentecost, remember, the Jews came from all over, and thousands of them got saved. And many of them said, we're staying here now. We have found this new faith. We're going to stay here where the apostles are. And this created overcrowding. Many of them did not have a means of income. Many of the widows that were accompanying them as family members could not be supported. This was a serious issue, and the church sprang into action. But there were dangers with it. And, and that's why to this day, again, when the church becomes sidetracked and she's no longer upholding God's word first and foremost, but start getting into social programs, she's no, she stops becoming a church. And I, of course, I'm going to return to that this morning because I think it's that important. This distribution in the church became a distraction because it was nudging the church very slowly, but very deliberately away from her assignment. We can take away social programs from a church and still have a church. But you can't take the scripture out of the church and still have one. That's a hard lesson. You can't take away the teaching and the preaching of God's word and still call it seriously the church, the ecclesia, the Lord's. It's not for people to dictate on this. God has spoken. And if they ignore this, I would encourage you to ignore them. Ignore them back. You disagree with God's word, I disagree with you. I don't even want to hear anymore. You may ask, well, what about love? Jesus taught, you know, love. You go, of course he did, but balanced. Everything was balanced. Jesus said, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. But he's speaking to individuals, not the church. Individuals make up the church, but they still remain individuals. We're talking about the assembly. Mark chapter 14, verse 7. Jesus said, For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do to them good. But me you do not always have. Well, we can say that about Scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of the mouth of God. And we, we have this adoration for the word of God because the Bible does. That's why. It's not something like, oh, you know, I like this one. Let's take this one. Better to put a Bible study in a soup kitchen than a soup kitchen in a Bible study. Would you disagree with that? Some don't, some don't get it. Uh, they don't understand this. Because they're looking, they're looking at people first to define God. 
instead of looking at God to divine people. Is the church supposed to fix leaky faucets too? I mean, where does it end if the church is about the people? In that way, we are about the people. What does it profit a man if his faucets aren't leaking and he goes to hell? Now we're keeping things in perspective. Satan wasn't standing for this. Urgent needs should be met by born-again churchgoers first. That is the first line. And sometimes the church can and does help. And overlooking fellow believers who are being slighted in their culture, what's happening here in Acts chapter 6, presented a very serious problem. Again, injustice could not be given a pass. You couldn't say, well, you know, these, these Jews, Jewish Christians are taking care of those Jewish Christians more than the others, and that's just the way it is. That would have been terrible. That would have been another crisis in the Christian faith that would have had to have been dealt with. This program, incidentally, does not continue. Uh, and that is educational to us. The church does not continue to do these things. There are other needs that arise, and Paul rallies the born-again churchgoers to meet the needs, and they do that. But the church is kind of left out of it, so she can retain her, keep her mission. Division in the church is always a problem. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writing to the Corinthians, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And then he goes on to say, this has got to stop. Jesus said, can a house divided stand? It cannot. Verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. I like that they summoned the multitude and the multitude responded. They didn't say, well, who are you? They were very eager to uh, get with their, their leaders. <clears throat> and certainly not the entire thousands that were being converted. These are the people of position in the church. And if the murmuring disappoints us, the way in which the apostles meet the murmuring, the complaining, is inspiring. And, and how the people react to the apostles is further inspiring. It's heartening to see this unfold before us. It says here in verse 2, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, these men knew serving tables. Nobody in this group served tables like these boys did. By way of proof, I mean literally. Matthew chapter 15, verse 38. Now in those days, pardon me, now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Well, who served them that food? <laughs> Matthew uh, chapter 16, Jesus kind of uh, takes them back down memory lane. He says to them, do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five, uh, pardon me, do you not, oh, I really messed that up. Let's just close in prayer. That's just, just traumatic. <laughs> do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? That's what he says. And then he says this right after that. Nor the seven loaves and the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up. See, those men were servants before they became leaders in the church. They were men now of authority because they knew how to be men under authority. 
And here it is, faithful in the little things. Now they're leading the church. They're leading not only the church, they're leading Christianity. This was a close call, but these men rose to the occasion. I came into ministry serving tables. I I became an usher in the house of God. And in that church, we met in a uh, a ballet studio, which the men weren't permitted to do ballet during service. (laughs) Anyway, it was a ballet studio. There were two floors. Uh, One week, if the ballet was in town, we'd be on one floor. If they were not in town, we'd get the better floor. And uh, anyway... The chairs, you had the folding chairs. You had to set 300 of them up. And uh, if you were on the top floor, you had to bring them from the bottom floor and load up the elevator 50 at a time, take them up, walk them to the next room, set them up, and this process would go on before anybody got there. And I loved it. One time, the guys were late. I started, I got there, I started, and they were really late. I said, I could finish this before they get here, and I did. And you should saw the look on their face. They probably hate me to this day. Show me it. Well, you know, you were late. I mean, you know, come on. You know, you were not at your post. Anyhow, uh, sorry to go on that rabbit trail. Down memory lane, I can still see their faces. Anyway, I hope they can see mine. And they, uh, so I got into ministry serving, waiting on tables. And it was wonderful. It was a noble and a high work for the Lord. We have many table servants here. I serve this table, the pulpit, but we have others that serve other tables throughout the church. Every Christian is encouraged to to find where they belong in a church. If you're just at the phase where you're just receiving the word, then sit and receive the word until God says otherwise. In fact, it took me two years to figure out I should be serving. I wasn't the brightest light bulb in the lamp. Uh, but uh, one day, uh, I'm sitting in the pew right about that area of the, ch- of the church, and the announcer came up, a very monotone, we need ushers in the ushers ministry. And God said, you, you should get, in that, get into that. And, and I did, and I, never, I have not stopped serving since. And so don't undervalue the announcements. God can speak to you there also. Um, anyway, uh, other ministries were not to take away from their ministry. Jesus' apostles were majoring in the majors, and many churches have stopped. In the book of Kings, there's a story of uh, the wicked king Ahab was commanded to go execute the wicked king Ben-Hadad of Syria. And he doesn't execute him. He spares his life. And so the prophet is dispatched, and he goes, he's going to him, and he says, you should have killed him. Now this guy's going to be more problems. And but to illustrate his point... He acts as though, the prophet acts as though he is a soldier uh, that lost his prisoner. And he says to the king, 1 Kings 20, verse 40, while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. He makes his point. The king was pretty mad with him. Of course, the, the prophet then says, ha ha, it's me. I just made my parable to you. But the point is made from scripture. He had one thing to do by command. And that was to take care of that prisoner. But he was busy with this and that. And he lost what he was supposed to retain. And there's a lesson. That, is, that was the meaning of the parable. That king was supposed to do what he was assigned to do. But he got into being a politician king. He got into other things. He was wicked anyway. 
This word for serve here, diakonos, from where we get our English word deacon. Now, we do not refer to our directly as to our ushers here, for example, as deacons, because all that serve in the church are deacons. From those who sing, to those who uh, work the cameras, those in the chapel store, the cafe, the children's ministry, those who clean, you're all deacons, you're all servants in that sense. Ushers actually is a word that comes to us from the Latin, it means doorkeeper. And that goes back to the, book, uh, to the Bible, does it not? The doorkeepers in the house of God. They were some serious guys. I mean, it was an honorable position. And when you come to this church, I see the men often open the doors for you to let you in and lock them to keep you in. No, they don't do that. But it's a good idea. Too many Christian activists are loyal to a cause and not to the causes of Christ, the person of Christ, and Satan attacks us there. So if you have a church or you're in a church and you, you succeed, you achieve your objectives, now you've got to fight to retain them because there are going to be forces in the way of, of humans claiming Christ going to come in and try to take it from you. Because many Christians, they visit a church and they feel entitled. They feel just entitled to come in and just take over, I guess. Verse 3 Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Church workers from church attendees. They were not imported. They, they raised them up from the within. This goes back to Exodus chapter 18. Moses summarizes yet again in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 1, he looks back at the many years ago. and he's, he, So Moses was overwhelmed. But his father, Jethro, uh, said to him, you're doing too much. You've got to delegate some of this work. And in his advice, uh, choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes. And I will make them heads over you and make them. And that's what happened. And it's exactly what happened. And, and it helped the people survive that wilderness experience. And so there's the precedence biblically for the apostles to choose those of understanding and knowledge from among the tribes. And in this case, the church, the people were allowed to nominate who they thought should take on this task. This made perfect sense. The apostles might not have been so familiar with all of the Hellenistic Jews. Uh, there are a lot of ways that could have gone. gone. They could have said, listen, you know what? We're going to let them choose. This way this backfires, it'd be on them. <laughs> that would have been wise, but I don't, I don't think that was their thinking. I think they just felt, all right, choose, choose who you're comfortable with. Um, just delegating this out because the people felt cheated. And to have their own impositions as overseers, greatly uh, reduced the tension. Uh, he says, of good reputation. Character precedes mention of being filled with the Holy Spirit. You notice that? Some claim to be full of the Spirit, but their behavior says otherwise. Maybe they're just not developed yet. They are full of the Spirit, but they're just not developed as a Christian. They still have a lot of the world in them. Uh, you know, a new, a new believer can be full of the Holy Spirit and just a little clumsy still. 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul addresses these things in the church. He says, but let these also first be tested and let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Let them serve as servants. That's what he's saying. Another of the Greek words has as its root, errand boys. 
those who go on errands, servants who ran, and that's who we are. We're, on, we're about the king's business. It's not a derogatory or menial task. It's an honorable position. To be a servant, to be an errand boy for God Almighty, I'll take it. David said, I'll be a doorkeeper in the house of God. Uh, I mean, that's just, uh, it's wonderful. But there are those that think when they come to a church that they should be allowed to serve right away. But the Bible says, no, let them first be tested. You don't know who they are, and they don't really know who you are. Well, get to know each other a little bit. 1 Corinthians 4, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. A steward is someone who manages someone else's property. And all servants of Christ manage what belongs to him. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Not people of talent. People of character. People of God. Being a hard worker is not enough. We need more. If, if that's all you have, then you, you, you're leaving, you're letting other resources that you do have and are not developing, you're letting them uh, waste away, evaporate. But if you are filled, you will work hard because the love of the Lord will compel you. Christian character, it is not in good doing. Christian character is not in good doing. It is in Christ-likeness. And that Christ-likeness will do good. And this is the, the, the balance between show me your deeds and I'll show you your faith. Show me your faith and I'll show you my deeds. It's, the, it's a perfect balance. It's a paradox. It's not a contradiction. Character counts because it exerts influence. It influences, it, it makes things happen or not, or stops things from happening. So men of reputation, but are they wise enough? Okay, they're good, but are they wise enough for this job? Full of the Holy Spirit. Okay, yeah, they're not disputing that, but have they been tested to see how they operate under pressure? Wisdom. Okay, they're wise, but do they have the Spirit? See, it's all tied in together. And if there, over the years, we've come across Christians get offended at this. It's like they just say, I'm here now, and you need to know that you need help, and I'm, I'm that helper, and move over. <laughs> and we, we, we laugh them so, at them so hard, we roll on the floor, pointing at them, holding our belly, giggling. Okay, we don't do that. But the flesh would like us to do that. We don't, never. We, it was just disappointing. I mean, so we very, take our work very seriously until I make little, little jokes like that. Because I know that you were thinking the same thing if it were you in my spot. Anyway, whom we may appoint over this business. Well, you can either support pastoral authority or you can challenge it. The people here are going to support it. When Paul gets to Corinth, they're going to challenge it. Uh, which one are you in the picture? Pastoral authority. It is not a power trip. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3, lay it right out, not as lording over the flock, but shepherds of the house of God. You have to lead, but you're not a tyrant. It is a guarded gift to the church. And those who ignore this, again, should be ignored, because they are disregarding what the Scripture clearly says. 
And this subtle deception to redirect pastors from prayer and ministry of the word. And that catch that now. Ministry of the word goes far beyond Bible study. It is a little annoying that someone says, well, all I want to do is teach the Bible. Yeah? Well, the pastors are in the trenches with the people. They're doing a whole lot more than just teaching the Bible. The Teaching the Bible is paramount. But are you taking hits for the people? Are you putting up with what the, the, the stuff that Christians can sling at you? Are you upholding what God has said to uphold, no matter the criticisms that come your way? This church has had a high concentration of men serving in the children's ministry. Fortunately, not the nursery, (laughs) but with the other children. They're teaching the Word of God, and that means learning the Word of God. If you can't teach children, uh, you know, you've got to question if you're able to teach adults. Children will put you into a whole other zone. When it, and you parents, you know this, because they ask these questions. like, man, where did that come from? How do I know the answer to that? <laughs> I don't. Uh, that's why I'd rather teach you than them. They're smarter. <laughs> well, verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer in the ministry of the word. If they do not pray, then how will they know what to say? If they do not pray, how will they know how to apply what has been said? We are interdependent. This goes back. Let's take it from 2 Chronicles chapter 31. Moreover, this is David setting up the temple worship. He commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of Yahweh. I love how the Bible ties into everything. You can't make this stuff up. If a human authored this, it would be so clumsy. It would, the misfits would be all over the place. But they're locked in. And the, digger, the deeper you dig into them, the more you find. It's supernatural. The pastor is not just giving a Bible study. He is supposed to deliver a message. Acts chapter 4, Peter said, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Well, that means he's got to get with God to do that, and that's exactly what happened with Peter. They walked with Christ for three and a half years. Acts 20, verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Any of you want to follow the Bible on this point today? We'll be here till midnight. Romans chapter 1. For I long to see you, said Paul, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. It's more than just saying, you know, Abraham was from Mesopotamia. That's Bible study. This needs to be that. But there has to be something that God is bringing out just for that audience. And I like this system. Prayer and the ministry of the word. Notice the, the order, because it is significant. First prayer, then ministry of the word. They made a point to speak to God before they spoke to men. And that is the simple meaning. And the ministry of the word, it says here at the bottom of verse 4. Jesus told Peter to feed his lambs, tend his sheep, and feed his sheep. And the feeding is a metaphor for the teaching of the word of God. And that tending is the ministry of the word. Going beyond just the teaching, the, yeah, the hospital visits, the, the marriage ceremonies, the premarital counselings, the counselings and the problems that come up in the lives of people. Uh, there at the graveside, administering the word of God, the ministry of the word. 
A congregation should demand this if they're not getting it. Luke chapter 1. Luke talks about, I did a lot of research on this. He says, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to us. I got goosebumps reading this because this is from God to us. It gives us that confidence that can't be shaken easily. Paul wrote to Titus, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound teaching, sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Are you picking up the bullets? These are bullets for us to use against the forces of hell. Don't forget these things because Satan does not want you to have them as special in your heart. He does not want you to uphold them. He wants you to compromise them. Verse 5, in the saying, please the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Christianity at work. And the saying, please the multitude. Thank God it can be done. If they can do it, we can do it. We're not to look at this and say, oh, well, they, yeah, but they had faith. <laughs> what is that? What does that mean? God does not impart faith anymore? Judges chapter 5. This is when uh, Deborah and Barak, uh, Barak, sorry, I keep doing that and I need to correct it. Uh, defeated uh, the Midianites, and they wrote a song about it. When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless Yahweh. The church is to lead by consent. And that's a picture of it from Judges 5, verse 2. And they chose Stephen. They, boy, man, he is a dynamo. Stephen is the one that's going to get Paul saved. Uh, anyway, uh, they chose Stephen a, Man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he became the first martyr in the church. The church wasn't established until Pentecost. We had Christianity phase in through, uh, of course, our Lord's his, his cross and his resurrection. The apostles did not dictate denominations. They, of course, included the people. Stephen stood out. Did these men just named come from the 3,000 that were saved at Pentecost? Well, we don't know for sure. Philip is mentioned, and Philip. He became really the first missionary of the church. We read this about him when Paul goes to visit him in Acts chapter 21. Philip the evangelist. See, he moved up. He started out just serving tables. The next thing you know, God is miraculously using him. as He becomes a pastor, and then he's known as the evangelist. His daughters were just quick to sing songs of praise to the Lord. Carrying the gospel to Samaria. And also the, there was the event with the Ethiopian. You're looking, I'm so looking forward to these events. The other men, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, we, don't, we know nothing else about them. Yeah, there's this articles, a little stuff here and there, but we, you can't count on the, those history of it. The, the Bible doesn't say anything else. Nicholas, a proselyte. Nicholas, uh, like Luke, was a Gentile, and Nicholas became a Jew. He was attracted to the Jewish faith, not ethnically, religiously. And uh, in doing this, he then becomes a Christian. He, he follows it to its conclusion. The Messiah is Christ. He realizes that. And that's an interesting one. Cornelius will come along, but Cornelius would be the first Gentile. Cornelius did not become a proselyte, though he loved the Jewish people. Uh, verse 6 whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. 
They didn't just say, okay, these are your nominations, that's fine. They prayed. They said, Lord, is there anything we're missing here about these people? Is there anything we should know about these people before we go ahead and go forward with this? Uh, Christ's given authority was not wasted in these men nor the church. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. They placed their hands on them to pray for them. That's what this means. This was now spiritual and officially spiritual, their appointment. We practice it to this day. It was practiced in Deuteronomy 34, where Moses did this, laid hands on Joshua. Uh, Jesus uses our hands as his hands. He uses our voice to say what he wants to say. This is that interdependence that I was referring to. Um, If you are totally dependent on God in, in the sense that I'm using it, then how can he get anything done through you? You're waiting for him to do it all. If you're interdependent with God, as he has arranged it, you get a lot done that way. And of course, in one sense, we're totally dependent on God. But that is not the context that I am using it. Verse 7, we're almost done. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So it's exciting to be in Jerusalem right now. Um, this, then the word of God spread, as Luke emphasizes throughout Acts, is the direct outcome of how Christianity responded to the injustice, how they lovingly responded to that threat that was a very close call. Again, what would have happened if the apostles said, okay, we'll do that, never mind scripture, never mind prep, what would it look like? What, what would you look like if there was no prayer and no, no scripture in your life and you claim Christ? What would, what would happen to you? Or what would not happen to you? Maybe we'll put it that way. What could happen to you if you were a child of prayer and a student of the word? That doesn't mean you have got to be, you know, writing, uh, you know, dissertations on the Greek or something like that. It just means you need to be in the word, at least your devotional time, and put it into action. The apostles being clear about their role, their calling, and uh, which was to pray and to preach. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Again, emphatic. The first task of the believer is not to make disciples. The first goal of a new believer is not to make disciples. It is to be a disciple. And then that makes disciples. Otherwise, Matthew 7, how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, you have a plank sticking out your own. So it's a basic principle of addressing oneself first. Not waiting to be perfect, but uh, certainly beginning the necessary steps. Do you know, if you've been around Christianity long enough and you've been around other Christians, you're discipling. It's, it's just a, it's a beautiful process. So how do people learn Christianity without other Christians? I've learned so much about pastoral ministry from Chuck Smith. I, I would be like so many other churches. Well, maybe not that bad, but uh, uh, I mean, just so much I've learned about. One of, the, one of the great ones is seamless ministry, where you're ministered the word and you don't even know, you're not even mindful of all the things that go into making an environment by which you can sit without distraction, and receive what God has to say. Uh, There's so much that goes into it, so many servants that make it happen. Well, and a great many of priests were obedient to the faith. Would these guys become the problem that ends up in Antioch? 
Would these guys be so possessive of their heritage that they would not give in to grace? Would the transition from the law of Moses to the grace of Messiah Christ be too much for them? Would they cling to what God was making obsolete? Because people do it today. They come from a, a denomination or another church and they cling to something. Even if the Bible has said this is not the way to do it. It's very difficult sometimes for people to, to learn this. Would they be the Judaizers who would make life miserable for the Apostle Paul? Would they be new wineskins or old wineskins? When the Spirit of God poured into them, would they burst and make a mess all over the place because they refused the flexibility that was offered to them through grace? This coming to Christ of the priest would be something that the devout Jews likely were really upset about. And this would contribute more than likely to the confrontations that Stephen is going to deal with. Stephen's not, Stephen is going to be up in their face. And he's not going to put up with it. And he, I mean, but, but it wasn't for Philip to do that. So we have to understand that's who God made in Stephen. He did not do the same thing in Philip, but he used both of them in a very mighty way. So in closing, the lessons from the book of Acts, are they unpleasant to you because you've learned Christianity in a different way? You have a different brand of church? Or are you seeing that, you know, this is how they, the first Christians did it and it's preserved for us to, to follow the example, to be a disciple? Or are you inflexible? That's up to you. It's up to me, too. Uh, some things in the Bible I, I don't care for. That whole thing about turning the other cheek, who likes that? And you <laughs> Raise your hand. <laughs> but that's, uh, you know, that merits a whole lesson. Well, let's, uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, the lessons from your word, so welcomed by those of us who love you. Maybe, Lord, maybe there are those listening this morning who have not opened their heart to you. Maybe they have alienated themselves against Christianity. Maybe they blame Christians. Who knows? Whatever it is, as they've been listening, perhaps, perhaps they have felt the draw of your Holy Spirit to you. If you're listening and you have not opened your heart to Christ, and you're still listening, it's because Christ has been drawing you encouraging you, coming alongside of you, telling you about his love for you, that he is trustworthy and so is his word, and that you know you are empty and lost without him, but you don't know how to make the next step. Well, maybe we can help you with that. You make this prayer and you are serious about it. Christ will receive you. He's been doing this for over 2,000 years, with a countless multitude of believers in all parts of the world, some of them very intelligent people as people go, some of them not so intelligent as people go, but in both cases, drawn by Christ to salvation, drawn away from a judgment to come for sin. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, I have broken your commandments, and I ask you to forgive me, I come to you for forgiveness because there is no one else who loves me like you do, who died for me on a cross, who is good enough to die for me on a cross and powerful enough to rise again from the dead to demonstrate 
that my sins are taken away if I would just come and be redeemed. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer, asking for forgiveness, asking for Jesus to be their Savior and their Lord, may they not be ashamed of this confession. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.